So how are you doing, Stephen? I'm well, thank you. How are you? Oh, man, I have had much better days. It is, uh, I think, about every possible uh, tech issue that one could have. Uh, I had it and uh, kept you waiting with the, I know you were biting your nails off like come on what's this guy doing come on come on so as long as you've had worse days that's okay I think yeah oh I absolutely have had worse days that's for sure so how do you pronounce your last name Nemesh Nemesh okay I knew there was something uh fancy to it it looked too easy to uh <laughs> <laughs> it's funny because you look at mine it's Croom, C-R-U-M-E, and everybody wants to go Crume or Crom, or and I'm like, bro, just look at the name. That, that's all it is. It's nothing fancy. So tell us a little bit about yourself. You're a Christian, obviously. Um, how did you become a Christian? Well, I was born into a family of Christians, and I've gone to church my whole life. Um my parents are Pentecostals from Romania. They immigrated to America. My dad immigrated to America from Romania in the early 80s. My mom in 1989. They got married in 1989. I was born in 90. Uh, so I've lived in a Christian family my entire life. Um, I attend a traditional Anglican church here uh, in the Phoenix area where I live. Um, I don't know that I would really identify myself with any particular Christian tradition. I'm just sort of a uh, I don't, you know, Kevin Van Hooser talks about mere Protestantism. I, I am a mere Protestant, I guess. I don't agree necessarily with Van Hooser on a lot or even very many things. But I would call myself basically a, you know, a content mere Protestant. I'm happy to be a Christian without being any kind of Christian in particular. Oh, I'm with you right there. That's right up my alley. You know, it's typically I, I lean pretty orthodox on a lot of things. And if there's something I want to know theologically, I'll usually go to some type of orthodox, uh, you know, commentary or something like that. So it's uh, this whole North American Protestantism that it's become is something wild. I'm actually reading a book right now, um, and it's uh, misinterpreting scripture, I believe it is, uh, viewing it through Western eyes. And mm -hmm. it is just phenomenal at when we look at the cultures around the world about how um, collectivist they are. You know, they're community oriented and we're kind of the opposite. It's individualistic in the West. You mm -hmm. know, so a lot of things we think are um, virtues, uh, they're just blown away that you know, it's a virtue for us. And, uh, but it, it just, it has brought so much more into context, uh, understanding, you know, which is one of the things that I talk to people a lot about, you know, scripture, especially a lot of, uh, evangelicals here is, you know, you got to understand who Jesus was talking to, you know, you got to know the culture, you got to know, uh, you know, something, the genre of it, the context within history. And, uh, it's amazing when you do approach it that way, you really get the fullness, you know, of the meaning of a lot of things that they say. Things come to light that you don't realize, you know, mm -hmm. like some of the metaphors and, you know, the parables and things of this nature. They're actually looking at geography, you know, and it, it, so they use all of these symbolic things and uh, it just all really comes to light. So, yeah, certainly. I mean, you know, the, the Bible certainly means more and, and it it becomes richer in meaning when you learn to see it from a different perspective than your own. Uh, and especially looking at it from the perspective of the persons who wrote it, or at least from that time period, it is very insightful and it's very illuminating. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Just real quick. Uh, uh, the book has just been so profound to me. I just wanted to add a little. So he one of the guys, it's two guys that uh, that wrote the book. One of them had uh, moved to Indonesia for like this long term missionary thing. And he was work. He had gone. His friend that he had uh, met there had this store that had three or four different people there. And they all had little tasks that they had to do in the store. And he he said, you know, I could set this up where you could have one person do all the jobs, you know, that these three or four people are doing. 
And the guy just looked at him with this horrid look. And he's like, what did I say something wrong? Or he said, well, then they won't have a job. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And that really hit me. You know, we, we, we don't think about community as much as other cultures do, you know, throughout time. And, and we're thinking of, you know, streamlining things and, you know, just getting on top of it. And um, so it, it's just the book is phenomenal. Um, so how did you get into philosophy? My undergrad is in philosophy. So I studied philosophy at Arizona State University. Uh, I graduated in 2013. Um, I suppose I first got interested in philosophy when I was younger. I was about 16 years old. That year I made a new year's resolution to, I I just got into movies and watching movies the year before. And I had made a new year's resolution to uh, watch more foreign films. So I, I wanted to develop my taste in movies. I wanted to start watching more foreign films. And as I was watching foreign films and I was reading about them and, uh, reading comment, you know, commentaries on the films and so on, I noticed that these films address philosophical issues and they're, you know, they're more philosophical in nature. They're presenting a worldview. They're commenting on philosophical problems and questions of life. And a friend of mine uh, who was leading a Bible study that I was attending at the time at church, he said, well, why don't you read this book? It was a book by Francis Schaeffer called The God Who's There. Uh, And he said, why don't you read this book? Because, you know, he talks about uh, philosophy and its relation to theology. And he talks about a lot of the things in, in art and cinema and so on, philosophical perspectives that you might encounter. So I did. And once I started reading it, I was hooked. I was just extremely interested in, in philosophy from that moment on. Now, I've, I certainly have gone beyond uh, Francis Schaeffer in a lot of ways, uh, but that was where I got started. That was you know, probably in 2006 or 2005. Um, so if, you know, if anybody ever tells you that a New Year's resolution you know, won't accomplish much, it, it changed my life, that's for sure. Yet that New Year's resolution to watch more foreign films basically set me on the path to becoming who I am today. So I you know, I'm interested in philosophy basically because of a decision a long time ago to start watching more foreign films. And so I, you know, I graduated high school and I knew right away as soon as I graduated high school that I wanted to study philosophy. I'd started studying philosophy even while I was in high school. So I, I did. I went to Arizona State University. I majored in philosophy and I minored in religious studies. I graduated in 2013. Um, I really had a good time. I enjoyed all of my classes. I studied all sorts of things. Um, and it was it was a lot of fun. I got along well enough with my professors. I'm sure, you know, in all of my classes, I was that one kid who was really eager and always wanted to talk. So I'm sure my professors might have found me annoying at times and maybe some of the other students as well. But in any case, I enjoyed it. And I, I still like studying philosophy, my my PhD. So I'm basically I'm going to be submitting my dissertation next Wednesday. So I'm, I'm about this close to finishing my PhD. Uh, my PhD is in theology officially. Although my dissertation is basically a philosophical theology, so I'm kind of combining both worlds. Um, but I've always had an interest in philosophy. I've always read philosophy, you know, alongside theology. So this is uh, one of my life's passions for sure. Absolutely, that's awesome, man. So where's your uh, where are you doing the PhD at? Fuller Theological Seminary. Okay, that's cool. Yeah, you know, I uh, wasn't in the cards for me when I was younger, but um, I'm actually going to. Uh, work towards getting something here now that I'm halfway dead. So maybe one day, you know, I'll be up there and it'll say PhD, but we'll see. Well, you shouldn't think of it that way. You're not halfway dead. Maybe now you're just getting ripe. That's Hey, that's exactly right. That's, you know, the, uh, what is it? The darker, the berry, the sweeter, the juice, you get it riper and you get it riper. And, and, and the next thing you know, it's just, it's just that it, best taste it's ever had. That's you. That's where (laughs) you are now. (laughs) Thank you. I appreciate it. So my first exposure to you was, uh, well, I mean, I'd seen you around and we're in, you know, in same groups and, and read some of your stuff. And, but the real was, uh, because I particularly are probably one of the few people that enjoy uh, the ontological argument and any type of ontological argument. So I'd seen uh, you and Ben, um, I believe it was Ben Watkins, wasn't it? Mm-hmm. That's what I thought. Uh, and I was pretty intrigued with the argument. Um, and you have, so this paper that, that you um, had sent over to me, is this one that's being submitted for a journal or? 
Yeah, it's it's out there in the world. It's uh, hopefully it's it's out there. Um, you know, I submitted it to a journal, and I'm hoping to get it published. So hopefully, whoever it is that we sent the paper to review, it doesn't watch this video because then they'd have to send it elsewhere. It's got to be a blind <laughs> review. So hopefully, no. Yeah, <laughs> but no part. Yeah, it's it's out there in the world, and I'm I'm hoping to get it published. Absolutely. Uh, so usually I do a uh, beer of the week, and I was cheap this week and went with one of my favorites, which is just. Michelob Ultra. That's it. It's nothing fancy. I'm not a big connoisseur. I know a lot of people are, but it seems to me expensive beer is um, it's like cheese and wine. The more it costs, the worse it tastes. So <laughs> it's just, <laughs> uh, you can't beat a good old glass of uh, cheap wine and a big old block of cheap cheese. It doesn't get any better than that. So I, what- I can sympathize with the sentiment. <laughs> so what inspired you to write on this uh, on the topic of your paper that you were um, submitting? Yeah, well, uh, I guess I should I should um, um, give a brief overview of what it is that I'm talking about in the paper. So the the paper is called uh, Michel Henri Dumitru Staniloye and the World as God's Body. So the question that I'm addressing in this uh, paper is as follows. On the one hand, Christianity says that God can be encountered both sort of inwardly in the domain of subjectivity and then outwardly in the world. Uh, But no matter which way you take it, there are problems um, which seem to undermine the confidence with which Christianity talks about these things. So, for example, if you say that God can be encountered in the domain of interiority and in our inner domain, the subjective, you know, the subjective domain, you might think that that turns God into a feeling, you know, that can come and go. And, you know, sometimes it's there, sometimes it's not. And then you're left wondering whether it really was God that you felt or just something else. Uh, on the other hand, certainly God is not one of these visible things that we can see in the world. Uh, so if we're going to encounter God in the world, it has to be a sort of a mediated encounter, perhaps by means of some kind of argument. And then our encounter with God is only going to be as good as our argument. And, you and I both know that the arguments for the existence of God, you might find them convincing, but other people don't. And no matter what argument you put forth, there's always going to be some possible response to the argument. And there are going to be some philosophical presuppositions of the argument that will be contestable. Somebody from a different perspective will come and say, well, I don't agree with this. So the question that I'm asking is, how is it that we can, how is it that Christianity can speak so confidently about God and the possibility of encountering God inside and outside, so to speak, uh, in, in the light of these problems. So basically what the, the, the question that I'm answering in this um, paper, the question that I'm asking rather in this paper is wh- how to understand what Christianity is saying. What does Christianity mean by God when it says that we can encounter God sort of on the inside and on the outside as well? And I answer this question by synthesizing the thoughts of two thinkers who you think you might think otherwise have no connection with one another. One of them is the French philosopher Michel Henry. He's a philosopher in the phenomenological tradition that I've been reading a lot of lately and that I really like. And another one is a theologian, a Romanian Orthodox theologian named Dumitru Staniloye. And he is one of my favorite theologians. He's certainly exercised a, a tremendous influence on me. And they both provide ways of understanding. So Michel Henry provides a way of understanding how we encounter God in the inner realm of subjectivity. Dumitru Staniloye provides a way of understanding how we encounter God in the outer realm, sort of in the world that we experience. And what I do in my papers, I try to synthesize these ideas. I try to show how to understand, you know, what Christianity is saying in such a way that we can be experiencing God, even in this very immediate and uncontroversial way, both on the inside and on the outside. So that's the the basic uh, problem of my paper. Absolutely. That's um, I gave it a skim. I tried to get it read. And of course, you know, with all the tech issues starting up, I didn't get to finish it out. So but I'm definitely going to finish it. It's pretty interesting to me because um, that that's actually one of the. um, I guess kind of. um, Gray areas for me is the inner experience, Um, Mm -hmm. you know, what exactly it is, how do we put it in a sense that, you know, we're not just talking about some type of feeling or, you know, something of that nature. Um, And also, you know, like with uh, natural revelation, you know, um, God out in the world. So uh, I lean towards a lot towards, I tend to say I'm usually that uh, I'm a type of evidentialist, Mm -hmm. you know, 
And I try, usually I'll tell people, you know, that, that God isn't a feeling. And the reason that, that I do is because I think that the North American evangelical church has the wrong idea of what the feeling of God is, you know, like we're supposed to have this um, inner, almost like burning in the bosom that the Mormons would have, you know, we're, mm-hmm. we're supposed to have these experiences and things. And there's lots of people, including me, I've had very few, you know, experiences uh, of God. Now I will say when I was first converted, um, you know, I thought that I had, you know, just the feeling of the Holy Spirit inside and things of that nature for a long time, you know, but when that was gone, you know, it was like, what did I do? Where did it go? You know, so, so trying to understand what the proper, um, understanding of being indwelt and having the experience of God. Uh, and I usually liken it to, you know, things like um, just having, I have, you know, coming just from an evidentialist point of view, um, I have an extraordinary confidence in, you know, Christ and it being the son of God and being God. Um, you wouldn't think that the evidence would be, you know, at the level that the confidence is I have. So all I can attribute that to is, you know, uh, possibly a conviction, you know, by the Holy Spirit or or being assured, you know. So is that the kind of where you're going with the paper is how to um, trying to put it into perspective what that inner experience is? There is some overlap between what I'm doing in my paper and what you're saying, but at the same time, there's a certain crucial difference. Um, For Michel Henry, for example, for Michel Henry, he thinks that on the inside, this inner realm of of subjectivity and feeling, he thinks that that's where we encounter God. However, uh, he would be quick to say that God is not any one particular feeling that we have. Uh, So, you know, you mentioned people who maybe have a conversion experience and then they have this feeling of the, the fullness of the Holy spirit and it goes away and then they wonder what has happened. Uh, Michel Henry will say, God is not that feeling that you have for a while. And that goes away. Um, you know uh, what Michel Henry would say is that God actually is that life that you feel that you find yourself having at every moment uh, that you didn't choose, right? You know, did you choose to be alive right now? <laughs> did you? <laughs> were you in a previous state, and then you you chose to come into life? You know, no, I I am I have done nothing to be alive right now. Um, I simply am alive. It's a it's a given. At the same time, there's nothing that I can do, even for a second, so as to, you know, assure myself that my life continues, because anything I do, I have to already be, already be alive to do it. You know, so I'll ask my students, what can you do? Uh, to secure that you will be alive for one more minute. And they might say something, well, I can eat or I can drink water or I can breathe. And I'll say, ah, but you already have to be alive to do all those things, right? Life is the precondition of all that. Life is what you already have to have in order to breathe, in order to eat, in order to drink water, in order to walk around or move or whatever. So this life that we feel inside of us, this life that is not something visible, right? My life is not the fact that my fingers move. You can cut my fingers off. I'll still be alive. Michel Henry says life is what he calls self-affection. It's feeling or experiencing yourself immediately. Something that is alive for Michel Henry is something that experiences itself. Uh, And we also experience ourselves. We're alive, right? I can feel uh, bored. I can feel feel tired. I can feel excited. I can feel happy. I can feel depressed. Uh, all All these feelings that I have, these are just different modes of life, you might call them. They're different ways that I can experience myself as being. Now, this life that I have, which is the precondition of everything that I feel, which is the precondition of everything I do, this life that I, that I find simply given to me over which I have no control, which I cannot secure you know, going into the future and which I didn't ask for, that life on which I depend, that is God for Michel Henry. So for Michel Henry, uh, you know, it's, it's not difficult at all to know whether God exists and it's not hard at all to prove that God exists because it's enough simply to you know, turn inward, so to speak, and to feel your life, this life that you have, 
that you didn't ask for, and that you can't do anything to guarantee that you'll continue to have it. This life, which is continually making you alive, that is God. So for Michel Henry, we are always experiencing God. We don't always notice it because we, you know, we look outside of ourselves most of the time. We're concerned with things outside, and we don't stop and simply reflect on the, the mere fact that we're alive and this, this reality of our own life. But for Michel Henry, it's not at all difficult to, to know that God exists. It's enough simply to you know, pull back and to disengage from whatever it is that you're doing and simply to feel your life, to feel yourself as alive. That life that you feel, that's God. Uh, that life that you depend on, that you didn't ask for, that you can't secure for yourself, you know, that you can't ensure that you're going to continue having it. That life, which makes you possible and yet which does not depend on you in any way, that is God. So, so he, he focuses on the phenomenology of it then. It's, yes, correct. Uh, oh, correct. Oh, all right. Yeah, that's so contrast with the uh, the other position that you were. Um, yeah, with uh, Dumitru Staniloya. Yeah. Sure. So for Dumitru Staniloya, God is found like this. One of the things that uh, Staniloya focuses on so much in his work is the fact that the world is intelligible. It's rational. It makes sense to us. Uh, he says that the fact that the world makes sense to us is obviously like necessary for our lives, right? We need to know what the world is so that we can use the materials and the things that are in the world for our purposes. You know, we, for example, we use wood to build houses and not other things because we know what wood is. Wood has a certain nature. It has certain properties. We can learn what those properties are, and then we can make use of it in order to build homes for ourselves. We eat certain kinds of animals and not others because some of them are nutritious for us. Some of them will be poisonous. We eat certain kinds of plants and not others because we know what they are. We know that it, you know, it will be beneficial for the human body. It will be harmful for the human body, whatever it might be. So for Michelle, uh, for Dumitru Staniloye, the world makes sense for us. It's intelligible. It's, you can know it. it. It's structured in such a way that it conforms to our capacity for knowledge. That's one of the things that he'll say. And he says this. The fact that it's rational and that it's intelligible, says Dumitru Staniloye, shows that it is the product, it's the creative product of a transcendent intelligence. So from the intelligibility of the world, he infers that there's an intelligent cause of the world. If the, if the cause of the world were not intelligent, then there'd be no explaining how it is that the world can make sense to us. It, the, the reason why the world makes sense to us is because it comes from a mind, right? A mind that appreciates the intelligibility of things, uh, that can grasp it and that can also create intelli intelligible things so that we can use, you know, other minds can use it. And he goes beyond this. He says, on the one hand, the world is intelligible because it's created by a mind. On the other hand, the world is intelligible so that we can know it and we can use it, right? So it, it serves the purposes of our life. And so he says, well, we can understand that the world, you know, sort of this middle term, is the medium through which a dialogue takes place between the creator and ourselves. So the world that we know and that we can know and make sense and make sense of and make use of for our purposes is kind of like the, the medium through which a dialogue takes place between God and the human being. The world is intelligible. God is the intelligent cause of the world. And we make use of the world, you know, that we receive as a gift from God, so to speak, uh, by you know, by uh, making use of the materials that are in it and so on. And he goes further on and he says, okay, so God is the cause of the world. He is the cause of everything that happens in the world and so on. Not only is, you know, the human use of the world in general a matter of maintaining a dialogue with God, but he says also the individual things that happen in my life are also a way of having a dialogue with God. And I find that what he says here really resonates with people who are Christians. So he'll give this example. He says, you know, I work with people and my colleagues ask me all kinds of difficult questions. You know, some of them might believe in God, some of them might not. And he says, through these experiences where my colleagues are asking me questions, I undertake a dialogue with God because I choose how am I going to respond to these people's problems? And I'm, am I going to love them? And I'm, am I going to seek their, you know, spiritual betterment by helping them with their problems? Am I going to ignore them? And I'm, am I only going to make use of them for my own enjoyment? Or am I going to treat them as ends in themselves, so to speak? So for Dumitru Staniloye, the world is an intelligible reality. It makes sense to us. And that's because it comes from a mind, which at bottom resembles our mind in certain ways. Obviously, God doesn't have a brain and so on. But, you know, it comes from a mind. And that's why it makes sense to our minds. And because it comes from a mind, he thinks of it as kind of like a, 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 an address or a letter. You know, just like I might send you a letter and you can understand what I mean, you know, by reading what I've written. 
So also the world is kind of like a letter that God sends to the human beings and he awaits a response. And not only the world in general, but even particular events that take place within the world. Those also, you know, are sustained by God because the whole world only exists because God sustains it. And so God in sustaining the universe and in providing me by his providence an opportunity to meet with some person, he is sort of presenting me with a challenge, you might think, right here, what are you going to do with this? And then I respond to that either by responding in love or by responding, you know, in, in a selfish way. Uh, so for Dimitrius Taniloya, the world is intelligible, it's caused by God, but most importantly, it's sort of the medium in which a dialogue, a back and forth takes place between the human being and God. Uh, so that's that's really the significance of the world for for Dimitrius Taniloya. That is, I love that take. I mean, I really, that's, it, because it, to me, it runs the same as, I mean, not the same, but some, it, what it reminded me of is it's a like a deeper explanation of, I believe it was Aquinas who talked about, um, you know, reality is God's reality is God. And we just participate in his reality. So, I mean, it just seems to that given that, you know, that when you really think about it, the foundation that all of God is all of reality and we participate in his reality. And then we look at the languages of the world through mathematics and logic and, and things kind of like the, the workings of God's mind. And then we, as he puts it, like you were talking about, um, that's also not only the canvas, but the way that we are communicating you know, with God. And it, it just, it, it really just all seems to come together like this big, huge picture. Mm -hmm. uh, is he, so does he, is he kind of a classical theist or any influence from maybe Aquinas or? So Stanley um, is an Orthodox theologian. Uh, he would not really be influenced by Aquinas mostly. His, his influences are typically uh, like Maximus the Confessor, uh, Gregory Palamas, and other other figures like that from the from the Eastern Christian tradition. Um, however, some of what he says is certainly consonant with what Aquinas says, and that's because at the end of the day, they're both Christians, right? There is, yeah. you know, beyond the differences of every individual church, there's a sort of a fundamentally Christian way of thinking about things, and I think that you know that's that's what explains why you'll find areas of resemblance between Stanislaw and Aquinas or you know other figures. Um, He's not a classical theist, I wouldn't say. He he talks everywhere about God being a person with a will and he has feelings. You know, it, he has this wonderful discussion of the doctrine of hell um, in one of his, it, he, so he has this, in English it's six volumes, but in Romanian it's three volumes, an orthodox dogmatic theology, which is basically his systematic theology. And in his treatment of hell, he talks about how God allows people to reject him definitively uh, and he just sort of suffers the sadness that's involved with that. So God's purposes are frustrated. He's not happy that people go to hell. But he, you know, in an act of kenosis, in an act of sort of self-emptying, he simply assumes the sadness involved in keeping those people around, even though he rejects, even though they reject him, because he loves them and he wants them to exist. Uh, so, you know, Dumitru Stanilo is not a classical theist. He won't really talk in a lot of the same terms as classical theists. But at least on this point, you know, the connection between the intelligible world and its intelligent cause there certainly is uh, a certain consonance between them. Absolutely. And I think to me, um, honestly, that's, I think that's one of the largest hurdles for naturalism is, you know, not just consciousness, but intelligence, you know, it's hard to see how, you know, random processes, uh, you know, it, it, we can take all the elements of the brain, and put it all together any way that we want, and we'll never get a consciousness from it, you know. So it, it's obviously not reducible to the brain, as far as we know, because you can put it all together and you're still not going to get consciousness. Um, but even further than that is, in uh, you know, intelligence. It's it's how how could you ever explain, even if it was an emergent property, to have the the intelligence. Um, that creatures have. I just, it, that's one of, 
in my opinion, one of the largest hurdles for naturalism is trying to explain that. Um, so, yeah, that's um, putting it, I mean, look, get putting it all together, it's, I like the view a lot. I really <laughs> do. It's, uh, and I'm, man, I'm anxious to dig into the paper and really get into it because um, putting those two views together, it, it seems pretty interesting. Uh, you know, how much time did it take you to do that? <laughs> the paper, well, I'm, you know, sometimes, sometimes I'll work on a paper for a long time and nothing will come of it. And sometimes I just have an idea and it hits me and I can finish a paper in a couple of days. I think I finished this paper in maybe three, four days. Oh, wow. So I, yeah, I, I had the idea. I wrote it down, you know, and then I, I sent it off. Uh, so sometimes inspiration strikes and, you know, I, I, I try to make the most of the moment. And sometimes I languish for <laughs> for a long time without any new ideas, without any new projects. And I just, you know, well, like, concentrate I my on other a, things. I guess if you got a pretty good understanding of both of their theologies, you know, that philosophy. Yeah, I, I wasn't starting from scratch. That's right. Yeah. I, I had a prior knowledge of the materials. So what in the end... I mean, I know you you were wanting to try to put those two together. Um, is there a certain particular aim at putting them together? Or was it just to make a more robust picture? Or was there, you know, another point that you were trying to get to when you did it? Mm -hmm. um, what so the reason why I want to put them together is because I think that... Um, Although they're, they're individual pictures, they're very attractive and, and I think compelling in a lot of ways. There are also certain gaps. There are certain things about their pictures that don't exactly work. And so I thought that I could help fill the gaps by combining them in a, in a creative way. And so here's, here's how that works. So, you know, one thing to know about Michel Henry, for example, he, Michel Henry, he's a phenomenologist. He is, you know, his approach to philosophy is to pay close attention to experience. And he says basically that there are two kinds of experience. Uh, there's an experience of, you know, um, what you might call intentional experience where you're sort of directed at an object. Uh, and then there's, you know, affective experience or non-intentional experience where you're not directed at an object outside of yourself at all. You simply experience yourself. So, for example, sadness, you know, phenomenologically speaking, sadness or excitement or happiness or whatever, you are not pointed at anything. You are simply feeling yourself to be a certain way. It's just a, a form of self-experience. And life itself, according to Michel Henry, is a form of self-experience. He does not believe that life is this biological phenomenon, right? Uh, and this is actually a great point to, to, to you know, lead into the deeper discussion. For Michel Henry, life is not a biological phenomenon. It's not that you get a bunch of atoms or molecules or whatever, and you get them moving in the right way, and then a living thing emerges, he, he says, no, life is experiencing yourself. It's this sort of non-intentional sort of self-experience, self, you know, auto-affection or whatever he calls it. Um, and that stuff, Adam's moving, that's just an appearance. That's just what it looks like on the outside. The real thing, the reality of life is this inner subjective experience of yourself. That's what life is. All this other stuff, the body moving, you know, you know, a person moving around and seeking water and eating food and so on. That's just a visible appearance. That's just like the outside of it. That's just what it looks like from the outside. The reality of it is on the inside, this thing where you just experience yourself. So for Michel Henry, the world, everything that we're experiencing on the outside, you know, everything that we experience as something distinct from ourselves out there, you know, whether it's this computer or if I think about the number two, for example, the number two is not me. When I think about the number two, I'm not thinking about myself. I'm thinking about something that's outside of myself. So when Michel Henry uses the word world, he is talking about this big outside, this you know big domain or stage, whatever you want to call it, environment where things that are different from us appear. So in the world, you know, you have the physical cosmos, you have this world that appears to our sense experience, but you also have you know sort of abstract or ideal realities like numbers, mathematics, logic, and so on. Uh, these are also in the world because they appear to us outside of ourselves. That's the that's what the world means for Michel Henry. It's this milieu of appearance, so to speak. It's just whatever is outside uh, that shows up to your consciousness. Life is this inner domain of self-experience. In life, you are not experiencing something outside of yourself. 
you're experiencing yourself. So when I'm happy or when I'm joyful or when I'm bored or whatever, I am not experiencing something outside. I'm simply experiencing myself. You know, that's why I say I am bored and not, you know, this is bored or that is bored. I am bored. One of the problems that people bring up with Michel Henry is that he interprets all of Christianity as referring back to this inner domain. So for him, everything that Christianity has to say is about this inner domain. And I'll give you an example. You know, Christ says, and this is an important passage for Michel Henry. Christ says, don't call any man your father because you have one father, right? God who is in heaven. He says, you know, when Christ says that we have one father, he is referring to what I was talking about earlier, right? I'm alive, but I feel that I depend on this life that I have that I don't control. Okay, that life is God and I depend on it. That's what Christ means when he says that I am the son of God. He means that I am this finite dependent life that feels itself to be alive in the life of God, so to speak. Uh, so for Michel Henry, what Christ says, you know, you are the sons of God. That's something that we can look inside and confirm and see that what Christ is saying is true. So, you know, that's a, that's one occasion. But a lot of theologians think that, you know, what Michel Henry, you know, it's basically like it's too inward. He doesn't say enough about the theological importance of the world. He doesn't say enough about the theological importance of creation. Uh, so this is one repeated, you know, uh, complaint that people have about him. He he wants us all to turn inward and simply to experience ourselves and to discover God on the inside. But he doesn't say enough about the outside. So he's, yeah, so no. Michel Henry is missing, you know, a sort of a theological significance for the outside, as I was calling it earlier. Yeah, it seems like some type of phenomenological or theological solipsism. It's, uh... it's not a solipsism because yeah. he'll say... He says you are experiencing God. You're experiencing something that well, is, you're, you're depending uh, on. But so yeah. it's not quite a solipsism, but it certainly is sort of inward. It's you know it's it's uh, turned inward. Yeah, there's uh, which I mean I can see that. I mean that's when it comes down to it. I mean that's the whole problem with you know fields like psychology and things of that nature because it's a subjective experience. You know, um, we ultimately we all know what pain is but i don't know what pain is for you and you don't know what pain is for me so it's kind of i i can see you know why he you know kind of goes that way because um it really seems to be you know kind of how life is i mean that's mm -hmm. just not going into solipsism but really all we can guarantee is what we experience yeah. you know so, uh, well, interestingly, Michel Henry agrees with what you say. So, for example, you, I see you, right? And you look like you're in pain. But yeah. I don't see your pain because your pain is not simply the contortion of your face or whatever. Right. right. The pain is what you feel. And obviously, you are feeling it and not me. What appears in the outside is just an appearance. It's just, it's just the way it looks from the outside. It's not the reality. So, you know, he will also point to what Christ says when he criticizes the you know, the, the, the Pharisees for fasting and for praying and for doing all these things, but on the inside, they're whitewashed tombs. You know, he points to that and he'll say, look, Christ teaches us that the reality of the human person is the inside. The outside stuff, that's just a semblance. It's just an appearance. It's just the way you look to other people. The reality is on the interior. So he, he emphasizes the interior because he thinks that that's what Christ's teaching, you know, suggests. The real human person is not this thing that you see. This is just an appearance. This is just an external aspect. The reality is on the inside and you don't have access to that. Um, but at the same time, people complain about Michel Henry because he seems to, he, I don't know that he actually does this personally. I'm not convinced, but they say that he denigrates the creation. He denigrates the world. He doesn't as ascribe to it enough significance. Right. So that's, that's the good. So the good thing about Michel Henry is that he, he provides us a way for understanding how we experience God on the inside. God is that life that we feel, right? The bad thing is, He's missing a theologically significant uh, appreciation of the world, the outside. Interestingly enough, the opposite problems are there for Stanislaus. So he does have a theologically robust understanding of the world, right? The world is where the dialogue takes place between us and God. God brings this world into existence. He puts us in it and then interacts with us sort of through the things of the world. However, the problem is that personally, I don't, I, we don't have to get into the details here, but I don't think that Stanislaus' argument you know, the world is intelligible, therefore it has an intelligent cause. I don't think that his argument really is is as strong. 
um, I think that it's 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 missing something. There's there's something missing in the argument. Right. So I I won't have to get into the details here because I want to move on to my my concrete proposal. But that's what I would say. So Stanislaw has an appreciation of the world, but his argument to show that the world is connected to God is kind of weak. On the other hand, Michel Henry has a way of appreciating how we can experience God on the inside very clearly and directly. But he doesn't say enough about what the world is. He doesn't have enough significance for the world. So this is where my proposal comes in. And here I, I try to create an analogy. You know, I said earlier that I am this invisible life, you know, this invisible subjectivity uh, that you do not see. But however, I do have an external aspect, right? My body. And through my body, I can communicate to, to you through what I say, uh, through the use of my hands, through my facial, you know, um, uh, uh, expressions and so on. So my interior life is invisible and hidden. But I do have this visible aspect uh, through which I can communicate with you and you with me. Now, notice, I am a finite living thing. I depend on God, right? So God for Michel Henry is like the absolute life. And I am just this finite living thing. And I can sense God as that life that I depend on. But I'm just a, a, you know, a, a finite life. He is this absolute life that I have no control over. Well, what I say in my paper is that just as I am a finite living thing with a finite body, but I depend on God, who is this absolute life, the world itself, not the earth only, not the physical cosmos only, but this whole outside, everything, the abstract, the concrete, all of this that appears outside of me, that is distinct from me, is the visible outside, the visible and external aspect of God. It's the, the body of God in this sense. So just as my body is the visible aspect of my invisible interior life, so also this whole, you know, milieu of appearance, the, which I call the world in the phenomenological sense, that is the body of God. In other words, it's the it's the visible external aspect of an invisible body of an invisible life. Right. And it's that it's that invisible absolute life that I depend on. So just as you know, I, I can sense that I depend on life in myself. And so also this has an external aspect, right? Externally, I depend on the world. I need to eat. I need to drink. I need to you know, be in certain conditions. So this internal, you know, finite dependence on the absolute is mirrored on the outside. My body and the visible dependence that I have on everything, that is sort of the outside, the visible external aspect of my inner dependence on God. And so that means that this world, which again, I don't mean the earth, I don't mean the physical universe, I mean this whole outside in which every possible experience takes place, that is the external visible aspect of God. It's sort of the, the corollary on the outside of this inner absolute life that I feel that I depend on. So that's what I mean when I say that the world is the body of God. Yeah, that's, uh, that's pretty awesome. I mean, really it is. That's, you know, when you, you, just like you were saying, I mean, um, we obviously have dependence outside of ourselves on God. Um, you know, sustaining reality, the, um, that just, that's right up my alley, man, because I, you know, it, it being, I love, you know, natural theology. I love, um, you know, uh, Aquinas's, uh, five ways. And, you know, so I, I get the internal dependence. And I think a lot of people would probably relate easier with that. But it's the external dependence also. It's like you're saying, like in the paper, that uh, I think it's pretty cool how you've kind of just woven them together. And it's like, hey, yeah, we're dependent. We're dependent. We're dependent. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So, so but going back to um, what you were saying about uh, Jesus and talking about the internal mm -hmm. I was on uh, David Smalley's pod podcast this past Saturday, and that was one of the points um, that I brought up to him and that I bring up a lot to people who seem to miss that almost everything that Christ talked about was the heart, mm -hmm. the intent. Yeah. You know, that was everything that he talked about when they outwardly were trying to keep the law, you know, he made it 10 times harder. He's, you know, he's, and it's always the intention. And I think a lot of people really miss that part of it is it's the heart that matters. You know, it's what you do when nobody's looking. 
It's what your motives are. It's that yes. part that you can't see, you know, um, like you were saying about him is the, you can't see what they're doing. All you know is what their outer motives are. Um, so that's, man, I'm, I'm going to have to look into his theology also because I, I kind of I like that, you know. So I would recommend that you read the book Words of Christ by Michel Henry. I read the book um, last year as I was doing research for my dissertation because I talk about Henri in my dissertation. Uh, and he, it was life-changing. It was like, you know, the penny dropped and something clicked for me. And I realized, oh, this is right. Uh, so Words of Christ by uh, Michel Henry. You can find that on Amazon. I don't think it's very expensive. That's what I would recommend. And I recommend it, I recommend it to a lot of different people. Um, he, he has some discussions that are more phenomenological in nature. So they may be a little harder to get through if you're not really familiar with phenomenology as a way of doing philosophy. But I don't think it should be too difficult. The, the, work, the book in general is, is I think, very uh, accessible. Uh, and I think it's a great sort of introduction into, into his work. Yeah, I, I, I'm a little, I mean, I'm from obviously familiar with phenomenology, but I haven't done um, too much in the realm of phenomenology, which is the problem with philosophy in itself is there's 5 million different areas you can go to. And yeah, you can't be an expert on everything. Right. Right. And, and being ADHD as I am, you know, it's like, no, I want to learn about this. Oh, that sounds cool. I want to learn about that. You know, yeah. so I'm kind of like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Trying to find out, you know, what I like the most, where I'm going to focus. Um, and that's my, I think I've finally narrowed it down after about 10 years in philosophy of religion. Um, I really, really like, uh, you know, pro-life arguments. Mm -hmm. um, and I really like um, metaphysics, mm -hmm. you know, ontology. Um, I, it kills me to this day that I still see very good philosophers who can't truly grasp the distinction between ontology and it's just, it's, it's conflated, you know, it's conflated so many times. It's like, well, what does that tell me? What the, what, what it tells you is, is epistemology. You know, we're, we're talking about, you know, an explanatory hypothesis for, you know, the universal abstracts in the world and, and things that, you know, it's, it's, we're, it's an explanation for all the things that we can't answer through science. And uh, so it, it, it's like I was telling you with the ontological argument. Um, I actually like the ontological argument. I know it's not very convincing, but uh, uh, you know, um, I think there's a lot more that goes into it than what a lot of people realize, uh, you know, the way that's. I tend to think that a lot of the arguments that are not very popular in philosophy um, they're not popular because people have certain, you know, implicit or inexplicit biases that just close them off to certain modes of reasoning. But if you if you consider the ontological argument, I think I think interpreted in various ways, it it works. It's sound, yeah. um, you know, and I also you know, I was just talking with another friend about Descartes argument for the existence of God in the meditations. Right. After he proves the existence of the self, he offers an argument for the existence of God. I actually think his argument is not all that bad. A lot of people, you know, sort of they don't take it very seriously or they think it's all oh, what a weak argument or whatever. Um, yeah. I think actually, you know, understood from within a certain perspective, it can be quite a strong argument. Um, so I, I, I'm, I'm inclined to agree with you. I, I like the ontological argument and, you know, like I, like you saw, I have my own formulation of it and yeah. I think yeah. it's, I think it's quite an interesting argument for sure. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And, you know, most of the people that, you know, the objections to, you know, the ontological argument really aren't even objections, you know, because when it, it just, it, it just seems that a lot of people just don't really understand modal logic, you know, and, and what's entailed there. Um, oh, well, you're just defining God into existence. And um, no, it's not defining anything into existence. You know, it's, it's using the modal logic and you're coming to it, uh, to a conclusion from it. It's not we're going God, therefore this, 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 oh, and God, because then we're just using circular reasoning, you know, begging yeah. the question. So, yeah, it's uh, it's fun to play with them. Uh, and but the thing is, you know, it's not really convincing. 
So do you have um, anything else that you're working on? I have basically <laughs> in the last couple of months, I've written a few different papers and I've sent them out into the world, you know, in the hopes of getting them published. So I have kind of this this new direction that my thought is is taking and I want to develop it. So I've sent out some papers into into the world. I haven't yet had many opportunities to, um, you know, to discuss them online or anything like that. But I, I, I have some various projects. I would, if, if you don't mind, I would like to sort of state the significance of, of the point that I made about the world is God's body. So if oh, yeah, um, yeah, yeah. just to sort of summarize the discussion, because yeah. I, I wanted to get to the conclusion. So the, the, the way that I tried, so the question that I was, um, addressing at the beginning. Okay. Christianity says that God is found on the inside and on the outside. Right. And for Christianity, this is not a problem. Christianity speaks confidently about these things. Um, so I'm trying to understand, okay, what does Christianity mean by God when it says that these, you know, God can be experienced immediately. Um, and that, you know, it, it speaks so confidently about this. Uh, so the way that I try to do this is to understand uh, basically, you know, the world, the visible, everything that appears on the outside, you know, the physical cosmos, the earth, but also numbers, mathematics, truths, and so on, everything that's outside of us, everything that's in the outside, um, as the sort of the external visible aspect of an inner reality, right? So just as I'm a, I am a, this hidden life, this hidden invisible subjectivity that you cannot see. However, I do have a visible aspect, which is my body, which is how I communicate with you. Uh, so also this world, everything that appears is the external visible aspect of God. And God is that absolute invisible life that I sense, that I feel in myself, uh, but that I, you know, that I didn't ask to receive, that I can't control, uh, but that is there and in virtue of which I exist. The, the whole world, this whole milieu of appearance is the external visible aspect of uh, God, that absolute life in whom I depend. So just like I'm, you know, a body that moves around in the world and in time and so on. Uh, but all of that is just a visible external, you know, reflection of something going on on the inside, which is invisible. So also that whole world, that whole context in which I am in, not just the physical cosmos again, but everything that appears in this outside that we call the world, that's just the external visible aspect of God. So that means that every experience that I have, God is there. God is that life that makes it possible for me to experience. And God is also sort of the invisible life behind this world that I experience. So all of our experiences are an experience of God. God is always everywhere, you know, in it, caught up in all of our experiences. Um, so that's how this is my suggestion in the paper. This is how Christianity understands God. And this is how Christianity can say with confidence that God can be encountered both on the inside and on the outside. Because God is that life that we feel that we depend on on the inside. And the external, the world is just the external, you know, reflection of that. It's just the visible external aspect of that inner life on which we depend uh, and which we see or sense ourselves and to be, you know, to be in immediate contact with. So that's that's how I sort of synthesize the ideas. That's how I make sense of uh, of these things. So, you know, if somebody asked me, like, well, how do you know that God exists? It really isn't all that difficult, right? That life that you feel that you depend on, that you did not choose to have, and that you cannot secure for even one second because it comes prior to you, that life is God. And the external aspect of that, just like your body is the external aspect of you as a living thing, the whole world, this whole milieu of appearance that includes the physical cosmos, but also includes mathematics and truths and everything else that appears outside of us, that is just the external appearance of God on whom we depend. And so everybody is constantly in the presence of God. Everybody is constantly in experiencing God. We just don't know where to look. We don't know how to find him. You know, people ask, how do you know that God exists? You know, Christianity, I think, is just saying you don't know where to look for God. You are so focused on particular things that you don't see the greater context in which everything is taking place. And that greater context is himself God. Uh, you know, like uh, Paul says to the philosophers at Athens, in him we live and move and have our being. That's this is that is exactly what I'm suggesting with this proposal. And it's most cer most certainly not pantheism. No, I agree absolutely. It is not pantheism because I'm not um, I'm not I'm God. making that clear because you know somebody's going to come up and he's a pantheist. You know, no, so. I don't I don't think that it is pantheism at all. Although I would 
at the end of the day, I think the label doesn't matter. I don't know what you would call this view, but I don't, it doesn't matter what you call it. You know, there's, there's clearly a distinction between me, for example, and my eyeball, right? My eyeball yeah. is just a, a part of my external visible aspect, right? And that I make use of to look around. Um, I am not my eyeball, right? I am something hidden that right. communicates through the eyeball. And the same thing with God and the world, I would say. So God is not obviously the world. Uh, the world is sort of God's external visible aspect that he makes use of to communicate with us. I, I like the uh, analogy that I heard once. I don't remember exactly who said it. And of course, you know, you can't press it too hard or it's definitely heretical. You know, it's God, God's dreaming, you know, and sustain. And we're all sustained by God's dream. You know, it's, mm -hmm. it's his thinking of our existence. So every part of our existence is within God's existence. And so, which makes, you know, pretty perfect sense with, you know, uh, experiencing um, or having that communication with God through his experience and reality that we participate in, uh, like I said earlier. Um, I didn't mean to carry the conversation a different direction. I no, it's quite all right. You, I just, I just wanted to make sure I got to that point. Good to wrap it, to wrap it around. Uh, it, I, I thought, I had a pretty good understanding of it already. <laughs> so um, I didn't, I just want to make sure, you know, I just, you know, wasn't doing my ADD thing and going off on a tangent somewhere, but uh, no, it's very interesting, man. I have learned a ton. That is, um, this is definitely, I mean, both of them are people I want to do more reading on now because, you know, here in, you know, the Western U S or the Western, in the Western hemisphere uh, with, you know, the philosophers and theologians, we're all used to the normal mainstream, you know, and we don't get the um, lesser known that are well known in other cultures and, you know, other places. So I think every opportunity that we have to learn, um, which is, Ironic because the book I was telling you I was reading was one of the suggestions that he had was to absolutely learn or pick up books about other theologians and other cultures. So we get that different perspective, you know, um, because of the way that we view everything through our, you know, Western eyes that we try to put, you know, what we value and much of the world doesn't value, we kind of press that on to everything that, uh, you know, we read. And mm -hmm. we all tend to put a 21st century meaning to ancient text and, you know, things of that nature when other cultures seem to be able to grasp, you know, the message that was intended a lot better than what, you know, because they still have a lot of the same, uh, values you know that they had in uh the times of christ so yeah absolutely uh, yeah definitely and you are did you say you were from romania that's right yeah right okay or were you born here or i was born in america yeah so my parents are both from romania and we spoke romanian in the house and I speak fluent Romanian, and actually, I just finished translating a book from English into Romanian, and it's going to be published by a publisher in Romania. Um, oh, wow. So I'm I'm fluent in Romanian, but I was born here. I've grown, I grew up here, you know. So awesome! So you guys, uh, everybody hears it here. I've got an international superstar on my podcast. <laughs> He's famous in Romania. Just don't go. <laughs> well, now I'm going to be famous after show after showing up on your podcast. There you, oh, yeah. Yeah. We'll see about that. So, <laughs> <laughs> Oh, man. Is there anything else you wanted to cover? No, I, th I think that's it. I, I think I, you know, I got the, the yeah, main ideas I, out there. I, that, I hope people found it interesting. Absolutely, man. That was fantastic, man. I really appreciate you coming on, Steve, and spending the time to explain it to us. And um, uh, I'm definitely going to, you know, finish the paper. I find it very interesting. So um, and look into uh, the, uh, definitely the words of Christ. I'm uh, definitely look at that one too. So uh, I appreciate you being here, bud, and maybe uh, have you back again with less difficulties, and it won't be so late next time. <laughs> it would be my pleasure.
Thanks, bud. Have a good one. You as well.